Well, hey, good evening, everyone. Glad to see you again, I'll say that. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to be there here in just a moment. Tonight, we're beginning a new series. Our life with Jesus is a journey, and the trick is to have enough vision to see the shepherd that walks with us, not just in the green pastures, but in the valley of the shadow. And it's fitting that we're looking and starting a new series that on the face of it, even though Aaron did a really awesome visual here, it doesn't make sense that we're talking about the Beatitudes on face value. To say this is a series called Kingdom Vision, to see through God's eyes, may not sound to you like it has anything to do with this list of people that Jesus invokes and announces blessing upon. But I'm telling you that if we could see the world through God's eyes, not just in the ways we just prayed, but in our everyday interactions with people that are desperate and hurting and spiritually bankrupt or poor in spirit, it would transform our lives and to see God's kingdom not just as something for then, but as something that is here and now. So I'd like to read this famous passage of Scripture from the most famous sermon ever assembled or collected from Jesus' own mouth, and it's called the Beatitudes. So I'd like to read all of them, and in just a few moments, we're going to focus on one of them. So if you would, and if you've been there, swiped or turned to Matthew chapter 5, let's look together at verses 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. I know I read a little bit beyond, but I think it's a tying off of learning to see the world the way God sees the world. And I've got to tell you that when I've been thinking about how to describe the Beatitudes, and we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about these as a whole before we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit in part, I want to tell you 
that it's really difficult to kind of get our arms around. Because if we're not careful, we might think that it's another list of commands, or if you will, it would be really easy to call this series Be Attitudes, right? These are just attitudes to be. Oh, that would make my preacher heart happy. But sadly, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. And I want to illustrate that by telling you and showing you a video of a gentleman that I saw several years ago at a worship service. He was a painter. And how many of you have been in a worship service where they have like a live painting as the music's going and this kind of thing? And so he's painting and he's doing what you're about to see. Um, Some things that you can kind of discern, but other things you can't really discern. And the music's going and the choir is swelling. And he does something at the end that puts the whole thing back in focus. But instead of just telling you, I want to see if we can illustrate this. So thank you, Becky. She's bringing the lights down. And this is Mr. Lance Brown, who has a website called The Painted Christ. Do you see him with the the cross, the crucifixion? He's doing all of this in just a few moments. See here, it's almost like a Rorschach test, Rorschach test, an ink blot almost. You see in the corner, you may not be able to see it. He has L and then a heart and VE. Then he splashes it, sprays it, smears it. So as I'm watching this, the choir's swelling and the music and the band, and he approaches it and he does this, and he lifts it, and then don't miss it. You see what it is? I hear the gasp. This illustration worked so far. What do we see? Yes. Kids are dismissed now. Yeah, Becky, it's going to repeat on you. Thank you. So um, this is what's fascinating to me. Imagine 600 people all of a sudden taken and gasping like you when he, what? Flips it upside down. What Jesus is doing here is not unlike this painting. He's beginning to paint a picture, and he's beginning to speak of these who he calls blessed before he begins to teach them how to live the kingdom way. And people are kind of maybe sensing the picture, but you can only fully understand it. You can only fully realize it until you understand that Jesus' vision of God's kingdom is completely upside down from the world's vision and values. Here's what I mean by this. Think back to your time in grade school and gym class when you had to divvy up for dodgeball and you had team captains. Who are the people that got picked last? You can raise your hand if you were one of them. Robert, for real? Robert, Miguel, man, how does this make you feel? It's a bummer. It's a bummer. 
Look, consoling him. That's so good. These are the people that we just read about that would be the last picked on the world's team. When I say that the kingdom vision is something that's upside down, we understand that the world picks and elevates the rich, the famous, the influential, the powerful, and Jesus turns the whole thing upside down when asked with a wondering crowd, who's well off, who's on God's good side, Jesus flips the whole thing upside down. So when we talk about kingdom vision and seeing through God's eyes, we want to let Jesus expand our vision of who is blessed, despite the world's evidence to the contrary. I want you to imagine, as Jesus has just healed throngs of sick and desperate people, Jesus, moments before then, perhaps days before then, had just called the uneducated, the last picked, to come and follow him, to become an apprentice, to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. So the disciples, these apprentices, are following him, and they begin to see Jesus touching the untouchable and pronouncing blessing and peace over the people that have not been spoken to or visible to the rich and the famous and the powerful. And he's amassed such a following that he gets up onto a mountainside, which is so reminiscent of when God was calling his people Israel to himself to send them out into the world on Mount Sinai to give them an identity and a way to live God's way. He calls them up the mountain, and you can almost hear and sense the tension that they've seen his power and they're wondering what he's going to say and do next. So you have all of these desperate people, recently healed, recently called, wondering, could this be someone worth following? Could this be someone worth listening to? Could this be someone that I can hitch my wagon to and find myself firmly within God's grasp? Can I find myself squarely within God's kingdom? And then Jesus assumes the position that teachers did in his day. He sits down, and on bated breath, they're leaning in, and they're wondering, what's he going to say? And many teachers in Jesus' day, and we can even find it in other passages called the Apocrypha, other sources that aren't quite Bible canon, but profitable to read, you can see in places like the Apocrypha and elsewhere where they say things like, let me tell you who's a blessed or well-off person. And they list all the kinds of things that you might expect if I asked you, who's a great church member? Oh, this is the person that prays every day and reads their Bible and comes to church faithfully and serves and blesses and does all the things, right? So they might expect to hear that word blessed and they begin to say, oh, here we go again. He's going to start rattling off and describing someone who I am not. He's going to describe so-and-so and so-and-so who were picked first. He's going to describe so-and-so and so-and-so that are at the top of the ladder. And instead what Jesus does is flips the whole picture around. He opens his mouth, and Becky, I'm skipping ahead, and essentially says this, to quote Dallas Willard, 
in his excellent book, The Divine Conspiracy. And so he said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. What he's saying in flipping this whole world upside down is that if you find yourself spiritually bankrupt, good news, the kingdom of God is for you. Now, this is really important. I said a moment ago that to understand the picture that Jesus is painting, the picture that Jesus is flipping, you need to understand that these are not attitudes to be. This is more about an availability. So they're not attitudes to be. They're not secrets to blessing and happiness. Now, if you were to Google books on the Beatitudes, you would see books, and I'm not lying, with titles like The Secret to a Happy Life, The Beatitudes. And let's think about this. Is Jesus saying, congratulations, you burned out, busted up, irreligious, hadn't been to temple or synagogue in six or seven years, be more like that, let's all be happy now. Hey, you who are mourning, good news, be more mourning, be more grieving, be more grief-stricken, be more desperate, and then God will bless you and call you happy. Luke says, blessed are the poor. Now we see Jesus say to the rich young man, sell all your possessions, do these kinds of things, but are we really to take it to the nth degree to say you must be poor in order to be happy? To receive the kingdom. Are you with me on this? This is the danger when we start to say, be more like this. What I'm trying to convey to you is that it's less about activity and it's more about availability. It's less about prescriptive, take four of these and you'll find yourself in heaven in the morning. And it's more descriptive. When Jesus opens his mouth, He's doing a show and tell of all the people that thought they were the last on the list and he's trying to give them a vision that if they could see through God's eyes, they would see that the kingdom of God is available to them precisely where they are. Are you with me? Becky, you're doing awesome because I'm all over the road. I told you I'm poor in spirit tonight. Let's put it this way to put a fine point on it. The Beatitudes are not about commanding behavior. The Beatitudes are about casting a kingdom vision of who the kingdom citizens are. This is why we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at each of these Beatitudes for two reasons. I want you to see yourself the way Jesus sees you when you come to him spiritually bankrupt and running on fumes. I want you to see Jesus open his mouth and say to you, the kingdom of heaven is for you right where you are. 
When you find yourself grieving and mourning and you think the world has forsaken you and all is lost, I want you to hear from Jesus that you will be comforted. When you are desperate for justice and it burns you up, I want you to hear from Jesus that you will be filled and satisfied. That's the first reason we need to see through God's eyes. To understand that when we think we are the last picked in the last place, that is precisely where these promises and blessings find us. Are you with me? The second reason is when you find others that are mourning and grieving and persecuted and desperate and showing mercy and are downtrodden and meek, would you see them the way God sees them as people just within reach of the kingdom? Could we be a church that is a place to gather a list of people described by these beatitudes that are not the perfect church people, that are not the pharisaical, I've got all my stuff figured out. Could we be a refuge for people that come empty-handed to find the kingdom gives them more than they ever thought possible? So this word blessed, it's really the question on these people's lips when they're hearing this. Who's really well off? Who's really on God's good side? Who is blessed? Now, that word beatitudes is from the Latin word beatus, which is beat us, right? If you were to just write it out, beatus, which is the word for blessed. So beatitudes is the blesseds. Sometimes it's described and translated as happy. This is like the kind of books you would see on Google. Some of Bible translations, maybe you have a newer one like a common English Bible. It will say, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who are crying. That doesn't make sense. So maybe there's something bigger and deeper than happy. When we read Jesus' word, blessed, surely it's something deeper. Surely it describes someone who is perhaps happy in the way that they are contented and in the way that they are flourishing under God's reign. If you were to write down Psalm 1, go back and look at Psalm 1, it begins with, blessed is the one who, and it talks about being in relationship with God and being out of relationship with those things that bring death. This is someone who's flourishing under God's reign. These are the people who are blessed. Now, can you imagine for a moment if we walked into a place like Austin Street or Our Calling, where people in our community are every single month, and we said, today we've been asked to bring a sermon. Now, let me tell you, sweet homeless friends, a sermon. You ready for it? Blessed and happy and content and flourishing are you who lost your job, have no ID, slept outside last night, don't know where your next meal is coming from, 
wondering where in the world you're going to be able to find any semblance of a car or a house or any pieces of your life. You haven't spoken to your family that's been estranged from you for several years. You fear for your life every night. That's why you try to find somewhere to sleep every day. But you have no shade. You have no AC. And you have a bunch of Christians and other people that don't even want to look you in the eye. You must be happy, content, and flourishing. Amen? We would get thrown out of the place. And here's Jesus looking at all of these people, and the first one he says is the poor in spirit. Luke, when he says these beatitudes, there's only a few of them, and he also couples them with the opposite, the antithesis, the woe, watch out, you're in danger list. Luke just says, blessed are you poor. So did Jesus say one or the other? Did Jesus say both? Did Luke only hear him say poor? Matthew heard him say poor in spirit? Luke also says, blessed are you who are hungry. But then Matthew says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is Luke only concerned with material possessions? And Matthew's only concerned with spiritual possessions? Well, I think we can help untangle some of this by looking at what does Jesus mean, poor in spirit. How dare he say to these people that are desperate and in just a similar state as our friends at our calling at Austin Street, how can he possibly say you're flourishing, happy, and content? Does he mean poor physically or does he mean poor spiritually? The trick is he means both. In the Old Testament, poor had a religious undertone. Poor means the people who are spat upon, oppressed, deprived, and needy. And what Jesus has in mind is this close relationship between being materially deprived and desperate that leads you to a place spiritually and emotionally where you recognize, I have no choice or chance apart from you. That could be you, my neighbor. That could be you, my God. Are you with me? So it's not a tension to be resolved. It's both and, one and the same. Who does Jesus mean, poor in spirit? He means those that are beloved and blessed, even when we have nothing to offer. And here's why it's good news for these people who've only heard bad news. Why would the kingdom of heaven be for people that have nothing to offer? When he says poor in spirit, he means when we could offer nothing, give nothing, when we couldn't get to God, God came to us. Let me illustrate this. Several years ago, we were a part of a VBS, me and Amy, and it was the kind of VBS, like most VBSs, where there's tons of kids, tons of decorations, and not enough time to get it all squared away. So we were a part of this VBS, and they were frantically putting down one of the illustrations for that evening. And in one of the sections of the room we were in, they put down these pieces of paper staggered like a pathway to a garden. Like you would walk in the grass and have a stone each step of the way, they had these paper stones, if you will, with words on them. And the words on them said things like praying, 
reading your Bible, serving, worshiping, giving, all of the things that good Christian folk do. Dare we say, those who may be rich in spirit do. But at the end of this little stone pathway, about six to eight feet away, was another large stone that had the word God written on it. So in all the haste and in all the running and taping, they said, well, we've got to go. Here's our group. And the sweet person doing the illustration said, okay, kids, do you see what that stone is over there? They said, yes. So what does it say? It says, God, great. Here's the trick. Use the pathway to follow and find God, but only step on the stones. And the kids, one by one, stepped on praying and serving and worshiping and giving. And then they looked at the great gulf between stone five and God. And she goes, remember, you can only step on the stones. And seven-year-old after seven-year-old jumped and failed because they are not Olympic long, long jumpers. And one after the other, they went. And then it was time to go. And the sweet lady doing the illustration goes, oh, oh, oh. Um, but Jesus helps us get to God. And as they're running, Amy catches one of them and says, what did you learn in that lesson? And the kid looks at her and goes, I can never jump to God. And as they're running away, someone as a volunteer runs up with the cross paper bridge that says Jesus and says, wait, we've got to lay this down. It's the last part of the stone trail. And all the kids are gone, and there's Jesus with no one to walk on him to get to God. And these sweet seven-year-old concrete thinkers walked away thinking, well, guess I can't get to God, so screw this whole church thing. I got better things to do. No, thankfully, these are kids that came back the next night, <laughs> and everything was not lost. But the idea, I think, is illustrative of what it means to be spiritually bankrupt. To come to the cross empty-handed is to recognize our absolute deprivation and the absolute inability to save ourselves. Those who are poor in spirit receive God's kingdom because their hands are empty. This is where all the other world religions really fall apart at a fundamental level. Because every other system is set up to follow the stones. It's set up to do X, to do Y, to do, to do this and that and the other. The difference in the picture that Jesus flipped on its head is to come to him because God came to us and to find all the stepping stones are after you have the kingdom. Do you understand? This is the good news, that when we could not get to God, God came to us. When we could not make the long jump, he made a way to reconcile the world to himself, not counting our sins against him, and to forgive us and invite us and to gift us with life. This 
poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the people that have no spiritual bank account with all the praying, all the worshiping, all the sacrificing, recognize their desperate need. And this are the people that God loves to gift with his life and his kingdom. John Stott says it this way, and I can't overstate how powerful and profound this is of how Jesus completely flipped this picture upside down. Thus, right at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich. The feeble, not the mighty. To little children, humble enough to accept it. Not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. Can we pause there? Jesus encounters not just soldiers, but leaders of soldiers. Not just on God's side, but on Romans' side. And he encounters rich people like Zacchaeus, who somehow squeeze through the eye of the needle and find themselves in God's kingdom. So don't miss the forest for the trees that all people can come, that nothing is impossible for God. But the kingdom is for those who release themselves of all of that privilege, of all of that status, to come empty-handed to cling to the cross, like little children humble enough to accept it, and not like those who can obtain it by their own prowess. John Stott continues, in our Lord's own day, It was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich and so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments. Nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword. But publicans, which is an old word for tax collectors and prostitutes. The rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. Friends, what I'm trying to convey to you is that to miss this is to miss Jesus. To miss this is to miss his teaching and the focus of so much of his message and ministry. To miss this means that we are not seeing through God's eyes, even if it's upside down from the way the world sees. To miss this is to miss the people that are just within God's reach, that find themselves empty and beating their chest and recognizing they're a sinner in need of God's grace. To miss this is to miss our neighbors and to miss our own selves. This is when I'm talking about seeing through God's eyes. I want to bring it down to a close to illustrate this when we find ourselves poor in spirit and when we find our neighbors who are poor in spirit. Some of you may remember a story in Mark chapter 9 where after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down from the mountain and he finds his disciples doing one of their favorite pastimes, and that is arguing. 
Did y'all know that Christians like to argue? They were arguing, and Jesus says, what is all this about? And they said, look, here's the deal. As a gentleman approaches and says, I'll tell you, I brought to them my son who has a spirit that has robbed him of his speech and that throws him into seizures and convulsions. And what's worse is sometimes this spirit tries to fling him into water or fire to kill him. Now, to many modern readers, we say that sounds like epilepsy. But I think in Jesus' worldview and in Jesus' encounter, there is enough to show us that there is some spiritual dimension causing this kind of bondage and pain. So Jesus looks at the father and he says, how long has he been like this? And then the father says, since he was a child. And at this point, it's important to read between the text and the lines and to put yourself in a similar boat, to put yourself in some of our friends who have loved ones that struggle with these kind of physical problems and issues, and to consider how long and how many nights they asked God to heal, to remove, to enable, to just give me one shred. And night after night, their prayers seemingly go unanswered. So then he catches wind of this healer, But he's busy, he's gone, so they find his followers, his apprentices. And five minutes after trying to pray for and cast this demon out, they're just griping at each other. And I imagine whatever he had left in the tank had to have just been burned out right there. There goes my one shot. But then he sees Jesus come. And Jesus is engaging him and asking him what's going on. Jesus it's worth noting, groans in size at the pain and the lack of just getting your stuff together his apprentices had. And he even seems at the end of his rope. So then the man looks at Jesus, probably with tears in his eyes, probably with his last bit of frustration. And he says to Jesus, If you can do something, would you have mercy on us and help us? And then Jesus asks a question that may seem harsh, but he says, if you can. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. At which point you say, Jesus, this guy is spiritually bankrupt. He's done. What are you doing? And then the man cries out in one of the most real sentences I've ever read in the scriptures. He exclaimed, really, that doesn't do the word justice. He croaked and snot cried and screamed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And with a word, Jesus speaks to the Spirit, commands the Spirit to leave and to never come back. And even in the healing, the man 
must have stood with bated breath because Mark tells us the young boy was so stiff and so still they thought he was dead. And I can't imagine the seven grueling seconds when he said after all of this, this. But then Jesus takes the boy by the hand and lifts him up and gives him back to a father. A father that had only moments before thought that was that. He had nothing in the tank. He was running on fumes. And he cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. The invitation, whether you're a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a neighbor, or you find your own self here, spiritually bankrupt, the invitation is to keep crying out. But the second thing is to keep your eyes open for God's kingdom. I think what happens so many times is we want the miracle, but sometimes we got to give it just a second, even when it looks like the boy is dead. I think the trick is to not only keep crying out, but to keep your eyes open for God's kingdom, because as Eugene Peterson says in his translation of the Beatitude in the message, that's when you can find yourself blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. We remember that the kingdom and the king has not abandoned us yet. And when we see through God's eyes, we see the materially destitute or the spiritually bankrupt find they have everything they need available to them under God's reign. The kingdom of the heavens is not earned, it is received right where you are, But the challenge and invitation for us is to see the way God sees, to see that he has not abandoned us nor forsaken us, and truly the kingdom of the heavens really is for us right where we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stunning and staggering words of Jesus, your son, who is the word of God become flesh, the light of the world in whom there was life, and that life was the life for all mankind and the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us put these pieces together of what was shared tonight to help to get our arms around this list of people that the world sees at the bottom of the barrel that you find so close to your own heartbeat. Would you meet those of us that are spiritually bankrupt, And would you meet us where we are with what we need, even if it's just enough in the tank for the next day. Please help us with eyes to see how you are at work still. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are you who make room at your table, for in that way even tax collectors shall be redeemed. Blessed are you who touch the leper, for you make a home for the excluded. Blessed are you who welcome the prodigal, for you express the fullness of the love that is God. Blessed are you who make friends with your enemy, for you know the way to lasting peace. Blessed are you who turn the other cheek, 
for you show more strength than the oppressor. Blessed are you who break bread with the stranger. You will have a foretaste of the kingdom. Blessed are you who seek company with the outcast and unclean, for you shall be accompanying Jesus. Blessed are you who love your neighbor, for you already live in the realm of God. Blessed are you who carry a cross, for you shall see God's wisdom. Blessed are you who wait for the morning, for you shall see the renewal of life. Go in peace to love and serve God and others.